Hello, storytellers. Welcome back to another episode of the Story Podcast. Um, as always, I am Harris the Third, your host, and Sammy is still traveling. And so uh, filling in for Sammy for another week is Kellen. Hello, Kellen guys. Kellen Robinson. <laughs> Sounds so official. You have cool names. I always realize when I talk to people on this podcast how weird my name is. And yeah. uh, everyone else has really cool names. She just said, yeah. <laughs> but your <laughs> name is people. also cool. I mean, being a third, like it sounds so, like yeah, no it's one a gets strong it. name. Kids these days don't get it. Adults are like, oh yeah, the third. Kids are like, Harris three? Who's Harris three? I'm like, come on guys. Like, don't you take history class? Like Henry the eighth? Like this, this was a thing. Like people had. <laughs> but you're not a king. So they're kind of like, why? I am the king of my own kingdom, I guess. Mm, okay. Let's not go there. That's going to get uh <laughs> mess with yeah next thing we know we'll be talking theology and stuff all right here we go uh we're really excited about this episode an amazing guest matt renner the vp at national geographic i guess he's a vp not the vp but he's vp of production which is a pretty big deal right um and they have been doing some really cool stuff lately at national geographic they produced this series called mars um, which was amazing. Have you had a chance to watch any of it? Yes. So I watched the pilot and there's this monologue at the beginning that it just really resonated with me and I think it'll resonate with our tribe. So I'm just going to read um, a quick line because I took notes. I'm a nerd. Here we go. <laughs> we dream. It's who we are down to our bones, our cells, that instinct to build, that drive to seek beyond what we know. It's in our DNA. And I just thought that was so great. And it, it, they went on to talk a, a lot more scientifically about what it means to go to Mars and how they're pushing the limits and that kind of thing. But that line was just like, that resonates with anyone as a creative or an innovator that's trying to move outside where we are now. Totally. We actually talk about that. Um, one of the reasons that he said he was so excited about this miniseries uh, was just how it might trigger the curiosity and imagination of kids and their interest in the space program in general, um, which I found really fascinating. He even, he even put me on the spot and asked me if I'd be willing to be one of those people on uh, the rocket heading to Mars for the first time. And I didn't, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't know how to answer that, but it was a really interesting question. And it's obviously one of the reasons why we, we as storytellers all love the stuff that National Geographic does because the stories that they tell, they really do pull you in and keep the imagination alive. And so we talked about that and a whole bunch of other things in this interview, including Matt winning an Emmy and some of the stories from his production of Deadliest Catch. Uh, just a really amazing storyteller with a lot of experience. There's so much to learn from this guy. So I'm really glad that you guys tuned in. So this is my interview with National Geographic Vice President of Production and Emmy-winning producer, Matt Renner. Enjoy. Matt, thanks so much for your time, man. So excited to talk to you. Thank you, Harris. How are we? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been been fun times in the story. Everyone loved your talk. Totally crushed it. I want to talk more about what you talked about. Um, you talked a little about authenticity. You told us about the Mars miniseries, which has been killer. Um, I've been really enjoying it, by the way. Absolutely amazing. You guys did an incredible job right, on that. Thank you very much. And hard. I don't think I realized how difficult what you guys were setting out to do. I think it's really complicated storytelling. To kind of flash a, back and forth between drama and mini and uh, like documentary style. It was so. it's, it's absolutely been probably the single largest challenge 
of my uh, professional and professional and knucklehead slash career. I mean, I like <laughs> to figure out, you know, first of all, to be able to, to work with such a, a, an insane group of storytellers was, you know, and just to be part of it. I mean, I think that's what the great thing about National Geographic and that this new vision of, of folks who work are very fortunate to work at the network. And we, we have this killer team and, you know, with, with Ron Howard at the helm, the folks, uh, producer at Radical, the director, Everardo uh, Gutz from, from Mexico. But yeah, we, we all got in a room and we're like, how do we, how do we do this in a way that's going to be provocative? How do we do the Jedi mind trick to, to, to young kids and even to adults who don't care about, you know, the science, but we want to like bring the vulnerability and the passion of what it means to be an explorer, you know, this, this sort of intrinsic value built in our DNA how we bring that out and uh, how do we communicate a really killer story that's going to inspire, you know, an imagination of our, of our youths across the the world. That's how you do Um, the Jedi mind trick, right? Is by telling them an amazing story that captures their imagination and kind of sucks them in. Yeah. So no, it was uh, quite a process and uh, no, I'm definitely, I'm very, very proud uh, to, to see, you know, how people respond actually across the globe. It's been, uh, a huge sort of success story for uh, you know, National Geographic, but just again in terms of communities that we've that we've been able to get a hold of um, and new audiences. I think it was the highest rated uh, series uh, to date in the history of National Geographic in the United Kingdom. Um, it's crushed in Spain. It's done you know really really well globally, and and uh, I know we're we're seeing you know really positive trends in the state. So it's exciting. Love it. Love it. So that's yeah. that's been your uh, your latest challenge. Let's let's rewind and go way back to the beginning. When did you Do first it. When did you first start telling stories? Is this something you started as a kid? I you know I yeah I mean I was very fortunate to have a really interesting uh, a childhood, and I you know I think it's probably safe to say that every family is has a twisted uncle or an interesting aunt <laughs> or some kind of interesting thing going on. A lot of interesting antagonizing forces that we embrace, um, you know. Uh, but for my family, you know, my the the, the matriarch, uh, uh, my my grandmother Ruth, was like the, the consummate storyteller, and she, uh, you know, she was, uh, you know, this sort of hero of mine growing up as a as a child, and I think she just, uh, you know, perhaps inspired me to to find myself. And I, I remember it was probably the first time that I I. I found myself acting on a stage was the first time I sort of entered the world of, you know, turning into a chameleon and, and becoming somebody else to communicate a story. And that trait, you know, even at fourth or fifth grade, sort of just that, that feeling of being on stage um, gave me such an incredible charge. And I think growing up being a jack of all trades, master of none, I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do, you know, um, but I know I loved telling stories. Um, and I, you know, when I first had these, you know, great opportunities, I was actually found myself in, in Los Angeles and, you know, found myself in a very small, you know, group of adventure shooter producers. And I was the lowest man on the totem pole, <clears throat> you know, scraping, you know, money to, to make ends meet. <laughs> I was DJing, you know, middle school dances in Compton and was wedding singing. It was like, you know, I was all over the map. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, just 
figuring out how to like immerse myself into a group of people and to be the chameleon and figure out how can I, how can I figure out your story? And everyone is, I always, always imagine people as a delicate egg, right? And like a raw egg where at the nucleus of that, there's, that's the great story, but you got to figure out a way, you know, and whatever is in your toolkit to bore the tiniest of holes through that tiny little, very, very fragile shell to get to the heart of the story. Um, and I think that in the beginning, when I thought that I was boring the tiniest of holes, I would, I was really actually taking a hammer out and smashing the egg. So a lot of like, you know, batsman by fire and trial by error, but I found myself immersed in this great community of storytellers, worked from the bottom up and, and, uh, started, you know, speaking to people kind of all around the world with a camera in my hand and learning what kind of, how to hone those different tools so I could actually speak to people and become the chameleon and figure out how to disarm you know, people and just say, hey, listen, you, you have an insane voice, but, you know, your, your story needs to be told. How do we tell it and how do we do it collaboratively, you know? Yeah. So it was, uh, but I always sort of root back to my insane grandmother who, uh, you know, if you were to go online um, and you type in sex, drugs, and bedpans, you'll find my 94-year-old grandmother actually... Um, uh, pushing out some serious YouTube action. Uh, she and her 90, 94 and 96 respectively year old uh, girlfriends did like a, a, a no golden girls on fire. Yeah, it's crazy. So you'll see Ruth Wallerstein, <laughs> my grandmother at 90, 96. Um, and that's for the, you know, more of the PG 13 audience. <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah. it sounds like, I mean, you're primarily known as a producer, right? Like you won an Emmy for being a producer, but early on you were wearing a lot of hats, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I think in this industry, it's, it's, I would imagine it's the same as in most industries. It's, it's um, you know, I think most people, again, not to speak for everybody, but from my experience and folks that I know who have you know started at the bottom, no matter what industry, and, and take incremental steps and are, you know, have their respective heads on their shoulders and acting like a swivel looking left and right. You kind of move laterally until you, you know how to move forward. And, you know, from a, from a storytelling perspective, it was, it was always funny in LA, as you know, and even New York and Atlanta and some of the biggest hotbeds where you're a young kid and you want to get, you know, hands on, uh, you know, toys like cameras, and editing equipment, you know, back then it wasn't as easy as to, to go to, to Best Buy and pick up a, you know, sure. camera for a hundred bucks and the laptop. It was expensive, you know, and so I found myself on Union Cruise. I'd be running late night, you know, scripts. And I remember this one guy was I, was, I thought I'd build up a rapport. He was an assistant editor working for Fox. And I was probably 22 at the time. And, you know, every day I'd gone in and delivered, you know, the, the night, all the tapes that were on the shoot, you know, I'd bring them into uh, his edit bay where he would digitize. I remember one time I just put my hand on his computer mouse and he slapped my hand. He said, you can't put your hand on my computer mouse, man. It's a union mouse. <laughs> I was like, wow. You know, and, and uh, I had a similar experience had come up where I, you know, there was something going on. I was PAing and. Uh, there was a camera on the ground, and I probably shouldn't have picked it up, but oh, I yeah. saw something that was going on, you know, uh, and, and that was provocative, and I picked it up, and I started rolling, and the DP came over and slapped the camera out of my hands. Until wow. I found um, Original Productions and Tom Beers, and Tom was this, you know, and still is today, 
this sort of nutty professor of story, and he he brought in people that were just super curious, like myself, and he didn't abide by conventional rules. And he just, I remember him sitting me down and said, look, kid, there's a world that's exploding out there. And in front of you, there's a pencil, there's some paper, there's a computer, there's a camera. Go, go figure it out. And, I, you know, it's like for me, it was the first time I actually had a chance to actually do it without getting in trouble. And that was the greatest gift because ultimately, you know, I went out and I would photograph and I would fail and miserably, but I'd come back and, and work in the end of Bay and try to just story together and realize, wow, I need, I need, I need to be better, a more motivated storyteller in the field in order to actually arm myself with the story assets. So when I come to the edit bay, I, I have what I need. And, and I was able to build up that, you know, arsenal of tools that, as I mentioned in the beginning, I only had like a hammer and a saw. And now I, I was more armed with like, you know, medical instruments that could bore that tiny, tiny little hole yeah. in the eggshell, which is coincidentally the only tool that you can actually use on a Bering Sea crab fisherman, especially a captain, because those guys are like modern day pirates. And so you can't just come in at an 11, you know, of energy and, and expect to get what you want, you know, expect to get that vulnerability. So uh, had it not been for, you know, folks like, you know, Tom to say, hey, here, here it is. Let's go. Let's, let's embrace Baxman by Fire. And I think, you know, I've spent since then a career in looking for opportunities of giving back for folks to have those kinds of experiences or to place people in places where you can actually have that experience where you can just try, you know, and then not, not be worried about having a, your hand on a, on a union mouse. Yeah, man. We need more. We need more guys like him. Sounds like an yeah. incredible mentor, like guys who give, you know, younger folks like the position you were in permission um, that they that need incredible. to go. Yeah, that's amazing. You, 27 you, years old and running the one of the largest, uh, you know, 28 years old running the lar- one of the largest, you know, series in the world. And, you know, he found out my age. He's like, you're, you're not, you're mine. You're like at least in your 30s. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm 27. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. But, you know, it was an incredible and very, very, very humbling experience. Um, so, yeah. Tell, tell us more about Deadliest Catch. So, you did you start on Deadliest Catch as a producer? No, I actually, you know, I, I had done a lot of, you know, smaller segment producing here and there. Um, and then I found myself working within the company. And, uh, you know, there, w- there had been an opening uh, for, uh, you know, utility you know, people, you know, and, and again, as I mentioned before, I, I wanted, I, I found myself sort of moving up incrementally and, and looking to my left and right. To the left was the field, to the, my right was the edit bay. And I, I didn't want anybody, or I, at least I didn't want, you know, my lack of knowledge in audio or video or, you know, to, to be preventing me from getting a, 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 my, my foot thrown forward into another opportunity. And so, when there was an opportunity to, hey, let's go up to Dutch Harbor, Alaska, and you and your partner, Tim Pastor, who coincidentally is now the president of National Geographic, are going to be the two people that are going to be rigging all the boats. That's your job. You're going to go up there, you're going to rig all the gear, and they're going to go out on their adventure. And that was the season one of Deadliest Catch in Opelio season. So wow. um, from the get-go, I was not part of the first wave. Uh, producers who went up there. Uh, I, I was I was part of what we called the 
the land crab crew and we <laughs> we and we you know got a chance to speak with some extraordinary storytellers and you know um some camera operators who you know again at that in, in that time I think more so now, but in that time, there was a really small group of adventure shooter producers. And these people, many of whom, you know, had scaled Everest, and they they, they had been all over the world. And I'm I grew up in Maine, and I grew up, you know, in the outdoors and on water. But you know, nothing prepares you for the Bering Sea. And so for for Tim and I, as like the PA utility guys, we just had a, a, an opportunity to sort of just soak it up. Uh, pretend to know a little bit more than we knew, but but to be a really really strong active listeners and just soak up the knowledge, um, and you know we sort of worked through that first year through uh, post production, and we didn't know what we had, uh, you know. And Deadliest Catch was you know it was it was actually the uh, a series that had come off the tail of uh, another series that Tom had produced called America's Deadliest Season. It was it was literally just you know, three one hours about you know fishing on the Bering Sea, and it conflated time, and it you know took a lot of moments from the, the king crab season in, in in October, and and mashing together with the Opelia season in January. Um, but so this was the first, and this, you know, and so it was like for all those producers and cameramen I just talked about who were the best in the world, they didn't they didn't really know what to, where to point the camera on the boat. It was like, well, how, what is the story? So oh, and so in the edit bay, we had literally ten thousand hours plus of footage to figure out well, how does it cohere into ten simple hours of story. Holy cow, man! And and that excludes the all of the fixed cameras that were rigged on the boat that were rolling. We just we didn't go to those until we knew that we needed we had a moment we had to go find. So right, uh, I was part of that first machine uh, of of you know one of many who who helped figure out the you know the format and um and then the second year i was uh, you know on the boats filming and, and alongside tim and, and, and several folks and spent a few seasons until i was on the on the moving into the fourth season i was i was asked to to take the helm so it was a, a quite quite a cool experience <laughs> and being on, on the sea you know again that that's where i i for the first time realized you know that this is where I am meant to be, and I, this is where I thrive. Where the where the best and worst of man intersect with each other, and where they intersect with the best and worst of Mother Nature. And on that line, that's where I got goosebumps, and that's where I was ready to rock. And I I didn't I wasn't nervous. You know I I uh, I, I would hearken back to my grandmother's very wise words of wisdom, which were like the two rules was. You know, be your brother's keeper and sister's keeper, and two complacency will kill you. And I, if I just woke up every day thinking about those two things, then I knew that I would come back alive. And the the brotherhood that's out at, at sea, you know, you as a documentarian, you definitely you blur those lines because if I'm photographing somebody who's you know pulling you know 1,000 pound pots that are being iced down because an inch of ice weighs a pound. So that 1,000 pound pot is now 2,000 pounds and it's kicking up ice and you got, you know, 15, 20 foot seas and choppy and it's a disaster and winds are crashing and you're just trying to hold a can. You're trying to get an image without getting <laughs> the world of the ocean on your leg. Like, I you can't know, even every, imagine, man. Every seven seconds, you're cu- basically cut. Like, I used to always love all of the, the great, 
you know, we would be in Hollywood before, uh, in LA and before we would launch and, you know, and every, every vendor would come out and say, well, this is how you can best waterproof your camera. And they would give all these crazy big bags. And at the end of the day, we would just literally like lubricate our cameras with silicone and put a, just a big hearty, like three gallon plastic bag on it. And that was it. And we were like, that's, we can't, there's no, it's like the lowest tech of tech is going to work for us. Um, <laughs> and it did. Um, but those early years were, were really fun. And, you know, I, I, it was a, it, not every day was a world where, where it looked like it was going to explode. You know, yeah. it was, there was, there was moments where you look up at the sky and it was a, it was a shade of purple that I'd never seen before. And, and you know, you feel like Forrest Gump, you yeah. know, out there, you pop your head and say, what? And this is like 1% of the world gets to see this. And I felt, you know, this extraordinary burden of doing right by these men who have all families, many of them have families, to come back and tell the most accurate story possible. And and we used to laugh in the beginning years, it was the, this extraordinary, you know, explosive backdrop over the Bering Sea. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's just waves. And so we knew that we needed to figure out how to tell Little House in the Prairie on the Bering Sea. And that's, that's when everything kind of unlocked for us. Uh, and I think that's when the world responded to Deadliest Catch. Wow. And then somewhere along the way, you win an Emmy. Somewhere along the way, we, <laughs> we you know. I'm, I'm like, I'm super curious. I've never, I've actually never asked anybody who's won any form of Oscar, Emmy, anything this before. I'm curious, as a storyteller, did that change anything for you? Did it, did it, did it, uh, was it like, oh, cool, was, finally I'm recognized? Or was it, oh, cool, well, I guess I got one of these. Let's just get back out there and keep telling more stories. Yeah, I think it was probably a little bit of both. I mean, it was uh, there was some shock and awe, and just just being able to be and you know amongst and, and nominated amongst some uh, peers who were also extraordinary storytellers, and to be you know sort of as young as we were, and no pun intended, but be on sort of a new wave of the reality television where we were, were you know, I'm, I'm not the producer that you call to, to cover Beyonce, you know, I, and I could, I could cover her well, but I, I was always, you know, or the Kardashians. I, mean, I, I, I was more interested on the sort of the real reality programming where there was real life and death stakes, mm-hmm. you know, at, and so to be able, it was it was as much of an, an honor to carry that Emmy home as also to represent all of the fishermen, and uh, uh, not only just in the Bering Sea, but all over the planet, you know, for those who, you know, leave their families to risk their lives and some from who never come back. Uh, so that was, the, I think, the, the, the most, I think, emotional moment was just thinking about everyone else, frankly, and, and I played a small role. I mean, and I, and I played a big role, but I played a small role, I think, in the scheme of things. And I think that's how you have to, you have to keep your charge like that because, you know, I've never been egotistical. I've always imagined and believed that the, some of the best ideas are going to come from, the, you know, the people you, you never expect to come from, you know, and so stay humble, you know, has been a, another sort of unspoken rule. Um, but it was a pretty cool experience. Yeah, I, I bet. I mean, I, I would love to win an Emmy someday. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be incredible. Oh, and, you will. You're well, you're well on your way, my man. <laughs> well, uh, and, and I agree with you, man. It's, uh, all the people that I find myself constantly looking up to are the ones that, you know, they are talented, but their humility far outweighs their talent. 
And I think that I think that you could take a young person with a little bit of talent and a lot of humility who's teachable and take them a lot further than someone who has loads and loads and loads of talent, but way too much ego. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. Totally. Talk a little bit about how, I'm curious, I've asked a couple other producers this question. I think sometimes there's some people starting out in different industries and they, they think that a producer is primarily like the business guy. You know what I mean? And I think sometimes they take a bad rap for being, oh, they're not, they're not really storytellers. They're like the business guy that represents the storytellers or they're the right. ones that just sells the story after it's already told. Maybe, maybe speak to that a little bit. Why, why in your mind are producers storytellers? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting and it's a great question because honestly, when I would come back home from to my my parents in the East Coast, and I would you know update them, you know first it was hey mom dad I'm DJing middle school dances, you know and then I'd say hey I'm a production assistant and they say what's that? Well, it's the I'm getting coffee for people and I'm um, I'm washing people's cars and I'm <laughs> all the grunt work and then occasionally I get to uh, do some real production stuff and then I'd say. Um, that I'm an associate producer. And I said, well, what's an associate producer? And we would work our way up the chain. And, you know, the word producer, frankly, it is one of the more ambiguous words, you know. Um, and even if you look across, um, if you look across various uh, uh, productions or even with your talking about the scripted world or the feature world or in the television world, um, but at the end of the day, I've always imagined a producer is like a fixer, as is, is, is you could go the way of, you know, being a financier and you're enabling, you know, other storytellers to to do their bidding and because there's now money, or you're a producer that you, you put people together in the same room and you're a function of saying, all right, well, you know, in order to execute a story, we need to get, you know, best in class or these kinds of people or just understand the right kinds of people that we need on the, on the school bus and the right seat to the school bus, if you will. Um, and then, and then producers, you know, but all of them have to understand the end game, understand what the story is that we're trying to execute. So that, I mean, it's not, it's not the, probably a perfect answer, but I, you know, I always imagine when I sort of worked through the, in the, at least in the television chain of command, when I worked from associate producer and I got to feel a producer, I was ultimately in charge. I was I, I, all eyes were on me. I was on the hook, not only to my production company, but to the network saying, you're the, you're the guy that has to know that you, when you come home, you have all the pieces and every, so when you actually sit in the edit bay, you can tell a, a story that coheres, that has a strong beginning, middle and end and enough interesting, you know, uh, character and stakes that will, you know, pull people forward. And so I've always imagined like that was when I knew that I, I had my sort of field producer hat on that I was, I was the one, the first line of offense and the first line of defense and yeah, kind of how I always imagined producer. But yeah, it's a, it's an obnoxious word sometimes too, because it's, I just, it's, it's, it means so many things. Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes producers don't get the credit they deserve. I think as storytellers, uh, or as, as you know, the, sometimes the creative genius is behind, so many projects <laughs> we give uh we give the credit to all the other people and think the producer's the guy that just got the deal done uh, right. sometimes that's so far from the truth well, maybe talk a little bit about that transition of going from producer now you're 
you know, vice president at National Geographic? I mean, are you still doing some of the same stuff? Do you miss sometimes oh, being yeah. the guy with the camera in your hand on a freezing boat in the middle of the Arctic? I, there's no doubt that, that there are days that I wish that I, it, it could be, I'm going to say it's going to sound ridiculous, but it was life could be that simple. And I wish that, I wish that uh, there are days that I had, you know, a camera in my hand and the onus was on me to come back with the goods. But I, you know, that, that same gentleman that worked with me who was inspired uh, uh, to know everything about cameras and audio, you know, who, who climbed aboard the boats and, and uh, you know, and rigged, um, you know, vessels, his name was Tim Pastor, and he had, uh, um, um, you know, uh, found great success in a meteoric rise, uh, you know, uh, not only in storytelling and production side, but then he moved quickly over to the network. And so we always, you know, stayed in touch. And as I was working in production, he was working in the network and, and, and that's a whole nother world, you know, when you're a buyer of, of sorts, but you're also very much a producer and very much shaping, you know, story. Um, and when I got the, you know, phone call, um, you know, for, for National Geographic, it, it, it was, it was a surprise. It was like a, you know, and we, we had been, I, I had my production company and I, and I, uh, AMC had a series of ours and they had killed their entire nonfiction slate. Uh, so I was left holding the bag. I was trying to figure out, you know, uh, legal issues and how I could, you know, re- re- all long story, make a long story short, I called to Tim for advice and, um, and he, at this point, had just been appointed president of uh, the network at National Geographic, and uh, and and he called me the next morning, really early, and said, "I have another idea." And I, when he pitched out the idea, it was to come and move my family from Los Angeles to New York. I I I think it was like ten seconds before I said, "Oh, of course, of course I will." <laughs> And, and 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 I think there was probably some crazy tension in the first two or three seconds, you know. And of course, I need to go speak with my wife. Um, sure. Um, and but but uh, it was an opportunity, I think, to to again to put myself in a position where I could I could give back. I could I could shape story. I could teach what I what I know, and I could work really closely with with you know, amazing producing partners and I could speak the common language, you know, because I think the one of the most critical, you know, parts of if you were a successful executive producer or network producer is that you've had some time working in a sandbox, building something from nothing, you know? And so when you speak with, you know, the artists who are, who are doing their best to sell you a product that you actually, and then they sell it to you, then you actually know how to communicate. There's a common language. So I was very inspired to know that the president of National Geographic had, you know, with Tim, I knew his work, I knew he'd been in the field, I knew his team that he was building. So, uh, but it was a network, you're a buyer now, and and you're part of that side of the storytelling. And I felt that, I think, getting back to my uh, analogy of calling my mom and dad saying, hey, mom, dad, guess what? I'm vice president now. <laughs> well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know? Uh, and I and I remember saying, well, if I can if I can communicate it in terms of of volume. And my dad said, I don't know what you mean. I said, well, let me get there. I said, you know, Grand Central Station. If you're familiar with it, and he said, of course. I said, it's this vast chat. It's like this mat. You walk in, 
there's all of this crazy space above you. There's, you know, hundreds of tracks of trains, but just the, the, when you walk in, there's this big clock and you look up, it's like, and I realized that, that just if I were to put it in terms of my knowledge of the television world, would, would fill up my body, right? If I, if my body, my six foot one, you know, 220 Shrek features, um, <laughs> would represent the knowledge that I have in the television and, and all of everything else, every, this entire massive room represented the, the landscape of television. That's what it meant for me to step into the shoes of the vice president. And, and so to put in terms of, it's been an extraordinary learning. I feel like I'm more than just getting a master's degree, you know, um, it, it, and, and, and it's been humbling again, but it's been awesome. Like I, I do vacillate some days where I feel like, God, I want that camera on my shoulder or my arms and running up a, you know, a wild, you know, to cover a wildland firefight, you know, yeah. fire, you know, yeah. um, but, but now I'm having that chance to, you know, also now sit at a table and look across the room and have a, have a dot, share a dialogue with Ron Howard, which maybe I would have happened on the, when I was on the production side of things. I, I but I think that, just being an SG graphic has accelerated that conversation. For sure. So. Yeah, I have, a, I have a friend who he always says, everything you do prepares you for everything you do. Uh, and that idea comes to mind right now because I think, you know, even even in all the conversations we've had, you're always saying things like your, your passion is to, still, to tell stories authentically and you want to tell stories that capture people's imagination. And, I mean, Nat, Nat Geo embodies all of those things. There, <clears throat> I can't think of a better place if you're going to, if you're going to go play that role, I can't think of a better place than National Geographic to give you the opportunity to do those kind of things on a regular basis. And it's kind of what you guys are all about. Totally. totally. And I, and I think with the new shift in vision, um, like Courtney Monroe, our, our CEO and Tim is taking us. And, and the fact that there's been a really an extraordinary investment from our parent company, Fox, uh, to invest not only into to you know the channel, but also invest in the the, society, the National Geographic Society, where where now we are really you know a content machine, uh, where if if you look at uh, almost like a hub and spoke model, content sits in the middle, and you have all these spokes that push out. One spoke is the National Geographic magazine, one is books, one is digital, and and we have I don't know there's it feels like we have 50 spokes that are all sort of generated. Now we have we're all under one one roof and and it wasn't the case you know a year and a half ago national geographic channel was the the byproduct was a joint venture between fox and you know the society and you know there was an interesting pull and push between the society and fox but we didn't control all the assets and so now there since the creation of the national geographic partners everything is housed under one roof which makes targeting stories and projects and unpacking them really, really interesting because we can really push the full might of a global, you know, company and community behind a project. So if it is pushing Mars, we can launch, not only launch a project uh, uh, on television, but we can launch various ancillary, you know, uh, content, uh, you know, whether it is books or whether it is over the magazine or digital um, and it, it feels one of the piece and so you're getting it and you know, you, you'll see something on Instagram, you'll see something on our social. It's yeah, man. you have, Dude, the... you have it all coordinated. It's like, Oh, this is, 
there's like there's a me- there's a real message here, you know. Yeah. No, it's it's coming through in the things you guys are doing. The box that you guys shipped us, uh, the big Mars box. I mean, it's yeah. got the book. It had a copy of the magazine. Uh, you know, the DVDs from the series. It was just like, man, they've really got it together. And all of these things, all those spokes, I guess, you can really tell that they're a part of the same wheel. And it's like everybody's working together. Because I'm sure those are all different teams, right? But and you guys had to get your calendars together and release dates together. And um, well, yeah, but, it was magical, yeah, that, man. But, that box was but magical. You know what? Uh, totally not, but I think it also it also you know speaks to our leadership and and it, it's one of those things where they mentioned before if I'm the if I'm the fuel producer looking around you know and I'm in a tight spot and but I'm still allowing you know the lowest paid person someone who's greeking a can of tomato soup because it's in the shot and I need a lid covered if he comes up to me and says hey there's one thing I was thinking about that might improve the value of production. If there's that kind of open-mindedness from a producer on that level, you know, then you know you're getting every bit of magic out of the moment. But when you have at the highest levels a CEO and a president who is pushing out that same message, and it's it's okay to fail because in failure we're going to get we're going to find a new curve. That and and you know we don't have it all worked out. I mean we we it's 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 a you know turning a tanker in a high sea, but there's some really, really magical stuff happening right now, you know, and when you have, you know, that senior leadership that embraces those hiccups, it it just, it feels like you have the right team in place. Yeah, man, I love it. You can definitely see it coming through. It's an exciting time for sure. How do you, I want to, I want to finish talking about Mars briefly. Um, Is there, is there a story you can tell us that's kind of highlights how that whole idea came to life? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a it's a it's a long story, and I'll I'll give you the, the, the abbreviated version. Is you know there was, you know, it, it, it even chain chain mails back to Elon Musk. Elon, for as competitive a, a man as he is, and for such a visionary, um, you know, first as businessman and then, you know, uh, turned you know engineer. Um, there was an opportunity to tell a documentary just on Elon and. And he really was the first to sort of push back and say, well, you know, I, I am building SpaceX as, as a company that is, it's, it's directive it is, to, is to get to Mars, but it's an international story and it's going to require international partners. It's going to require just, just can't just be me. And that, that, you know, pushed, um, pushed the conversation down pretty quickly pretty far because it was just supposed to be a documentary and and when brian grazer you know and ron howard came in the conversation and and ron has a relationship with elon and elon said well you know we got to get a great director here to talk about it was first against the documentary and and then it all evolved into you know well maybe there's a bigger story here and then brian grazer just happened to have lunch with the you know the ceo of of uh you know fox and and he, there was like the quickest yes that he's ever said. Well, now we got to figure out, figure out what the story is, you know. But <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yes, if Ron, if Ron says yes in two seconds, and Brian is on board, and the head of Fox, you know, Peter Rice is on board, you know, it, it only makes sense that it's going to go to uh, uh, Fox's network, National Geographic, and you know, and from that point on, you know, again, it was, I think everybody was very keen on 
on, on answering the question, how do we get the brightest minds in, in the world, you know, in the room together? How, and how do we, how do we tell a story that's um, inspirational, aspirational, that captures, you know, um, you know, the, the dramatic entertaining, you know, sort of value that we, we need in order to be able to sell through this extraordinary science. And it, it was a, a series of really intense workshops, you know, and ultimately, you know, the idea of having a drama, a dramatic scripted component came in the room. And then it was a question of, well, who leads the dance? You know, is it, is it a drama a doc or a doc drama? And a doc drama is normally, it's, it's like the recreation shows you see. Right. And we said, well, we don't want, we don't want that. Right. And so, you know, it, it was, again, it was, I think, just taking some serious piece of faith and trying to, um, again, work with some of the brightest minds and some, you know, Everardo as a, as a director and, and the team that uh, Justin Wilkes at Radical uh, had put together along with John Kamen at Radical. It just, it was like the perfect storm of storytellers. And it was not, it's not easy. And we always laugh or, you know, to get to Mars is, is going to be really, really hard. To, to, to create a story about getting to Mars that gets that sort of gets most of the, the brightest minds in the world thinking in the same space because if you ask Elon Musk how you're going to get to Mars, he's going to tell you one version. If you ask NASA, they're going to tell you their version. If you ask the European Space Agency or the folks in, in, in China, they have their own version, you know? And it's, the, it's like if you go back, it's like the, it's the battle between Tesla and Edison. It's like who's going to get there first? So we had to figure out also and be elegant about it. How do we build like like a farm? Like how do we on a farm? How do we build a big pen around all these brightest minds? Yeah. And then say, okay, now you're in this space. And now talk about this and could this be possible? And then ultimately everyone said, oh, that, that yeah, no, that's all, that could happen, sure. So when we started getting a lot of people agreeing to just the process, um, we started to see the magic happen. And, and then we would have people like, you know, Dr. Bobby Braun, who is, you know, uh, a, worked at NASA for years, and then he would he basically consults now, he's a, a private citizen, he consults for both SpaceX and NASA. So when he's giving you the quiet nod or the wink or the thumbs up, of that's probably what the rocket will look like. Like, okay, we got it, you know, we could because we didn't want to live in, you know, a space that wasn't authentic. And, you know, we would... To, to peel back all the layers, you can see the, the from production design of just the sets, like everything was molded by people who would have a hand in our future as if they were actually, you know, uh, creating uh, a habitat on Mars. And that was the, the, the single most exciting thing to come out of the process. It's, every time that you pull the, a card off the wall when you're building the story, you could say, yep, that's authentic. Yep, that's all. Check, 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 check. Um, and when we had the entire series laid out, in that same spirit, we could legitimately go around, and it's it's almost like putting the 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 National Geographic yellow border bulletproof test around every single car. It's like this is going to be cool, and you know, we we did something very unique. So uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully, as the the next three episodes premiere, you know, people will be able to to watch the whole series in one. It could be a, you know a bingeable experience, but I really do think it's it's fun, and, I, and I, the last thing I'll say is, and it's more on a personal note. Like, I, 
growing up with my mother and father, I, I always could never connect to a way that they could connect to space. They grew up in in schools at the sitting at their desk listening to listening to Kennedy talk about the vision. They they remember when John Glenn went into orbit. They they can t- tell you what the air smelled like when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped on the moon. And I, as as children, you, we didn't have that. I I grew up with a space you know shuttle Challenger explosion and. I remember feeling something, but I didn't have that kind of visceral connection. And having had the experience working on this project, I have such a space passion craze now. And I think, and it's cool because I think that if I can be infected, and I'm a 30 year, 38 year old man, yeah. you know, it's it's a good thing because I think that it's hopefully it will inspire people to look up towards the heavens and and to look at their neighbors and, and no matter whether there's a political boundary there or not and say, we are a humanity and we have to think of like that we're as one humanity, it doesn't matter the color of our skin or our gender, you know, and if we can put our heads together, we can do some pretty extraordinary things. Yeah, man, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because you just put into words kind of something that I felt too when I watched the first episode of the miniseries. Um, I, f- I think I felt it a little bit when I watched Gravity. Did you see the film Gravity? Um, totally. Yeah, it was a similar kind of feeling. It was like, wow, well, I've just never really been into space stuff for some reason. And I, for some reason, that is that has triggered like some, I'm like, is something wrong with me? Is there something I'm missing? Like, am I just not smart enough to get it? And I felt little glimpses of it while watching Gravity. That film made me feel something. And then it kind of went away. Um, and I, I, it, it sounds like I'm making it up just for the sake of this this podcast, but everything you're saying happened to me when I was watching the first episode of the miniseries. Um, that first episode of Mars, I was like, "Dang! Like this is really fascinating." And you start to feel that that like that childlike wonder and curiosity of like, "What would it, man? What would it be like to go? What would it be right. like if we had to go? Um, and like, what is so it like to be those people going up for the first time? You know, like, gosh." So let me ask you a question. Yeah. After after watching the first episode. If you were given the opportunity to go to Mars, would you go? <laughs> I don't know if I know the answer to that question. I mean, you you certainly feel the weight. I felt the weight of the characters in the drama portion of, you know, when when the captain is like, hey, no judgment, like, wouldn't blame you. In fact, you probably should stay, but this is your chance, you know, to back out. Um, and you, you feel the weight of like, holy cow, man, like, he's right. They may not come back. And they're the first person to ever try this before. And that's when I started on my own trying to connect back emotionally with some of the stuff that our parents experienced back in the Kennedy era or, you know, the guys walking on the moon for the first time. It's like, I can't imagine what that would have felt like. So, yeah, man, I think you're right. I think I think maybe what what those moments were for our parents, you know, maybe this is for, for our generation. And I, I think we have a lot of kids that are going to grow up and, what you're doing these days at National Geographic through this project and future projects, you know, there's going to be kids that are going to end up on Mars someday and they're going to be interviewed by somebody on CNN or whatever the next (laughs) news network is. And they're going to say, how'd you end up here? And they're going to say, well, when I was a little kid, I was sitting on the living room floor. I remember my mom and my dad were watching this thing called Mars, you know, and that that's how, how cool is it to know that you had a hand in that? That's pretty sweet. 
Oh no, man! It would be it would be pretty cool, you know. And I, you know, again, if it's just uh, not to be super cliche, but but it, but if we, I do think that the success will we feel successful if we can we can at least inspire. And I, and I, you know, um, I I found myself in the Grosvenor Auditorium. It's 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 basically like the auditorium that Edison built. In, in DC, uh, the National Geographic headquarters, uh, several weeks ago, it was it was a few nights before the premiere of Mars on the network, and they had uh, uh, we had uh, invited several inner city schools to come to the theater and to watch the first two episodes. We'd them together back to back, but before they watched it, uh, NASA, our good friends, had uh, figured out a way to create a direct link between the space station and, uh, no way. Uh, and, and our auditorium. <laughs> That's and cool. so the kids, these are, you know, a few hundred kids from the inner city, uh, when they showed up, I don't think they had any idea that they were about to talk to an astronaut in real time. And, um, you know, all of a sudden you see mission control pop up is on a 40 foot, you know, screen and then boom, you see a guy who's floating in space and he's like, how are we? Oh man, you that's know? amazing. See again, sort of the shock of, of all the kids faces that, that gave me, you know, again, and as a, as a father of young, you know, three young kids, it's, I, I felt really good, you know, and that, that, you know, at the very least this, this is an opportunity that getting people talking you know, uh, about the possibilities again in, in a time where there's a lot of, a lot of interesting things going on in the political world and in our country and a lot of, a lot of tension. So when to, to be able to break away from that and then to, to be able to have uh, some young children talk to an astronaut, it's, it was, it was cool. Yeah, man. Well, that's, that's why it's such an honor to to have you on stage this past year at Story. I mean, there there are two different types of storytellers in the world. There's those who understand that there are certain formulas to storytelling, and they tell stories to for marketing and advertising to sell stuff, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great way to make a living, and it's a needed part of getting messages out there. And there are people who make you know action flicks that will gross great money in the box office for the sake of entertainment. And then there's a special kind of storyteller that believes that stories have the power to ignite wonder and curiosity uh, inside of people and make them feel something. And there's something about when that happens is something that changes them. And those stories are special, and those are the ones that need to be shared. And those are the types of storytellers that make up the story community. And so, man, I'm just – we're in awe and in love with everything that you're doing and everything that Nat Geo is doing right now, all the changes that are going on. It's just an exciting time. And we're all watching and listening and – cheering you guys on and we're grateful so i appreciate you appreciate you taking the time so how do we find matt renner's grandmother on youtube that's what i need to know (laughs) i know right that was hilarious i really really loved this interview um I just really like Matt in general. I, he's just the kind of guy. Every time I see him or talk to him or hang out with him, and like, man, can we just can we just go hang out somewhere? Can we go to yeah. like a bar, or coffee shop, and just sit and chat for a while? It sounds um, like he just has stories upon stories. I got to meet him at Story actually, and it, he was so nice and kind and just excited to be there, which is fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite parts of that interview was him talking about how someone gave him permission to do something, you know, he has all these different experiences where 
he's working with all these different union crews and they're like, Hey, don't touch that. Hey, put that camera down. Uh, rather than them being excited about, Oh, cool. You picked up a camera. I'm glad you caught that moment. And now all of a sudden one of these mentors just came along, gave him permission to do the thing that he was wired and created mm-hmm. to do and what that led to and how many doors it opened up and the passions that started getting fulfilled. And now here he is, it's really cool that he sees himself in this position. Here he is as a VP of production at a national network. And now he's the one giving permission to other younger guys to go out and do what they do, you know, and produce the content that they were meant to create. Um, I just, I love that about him and I love the humility that has brought because it gives him appreciation, uh, for where he is right now. Cause he used to be that guy out there on the field doing the thing. And I loved his hustle cause he talks all those stories about, um, his first days in Hollywood. I mean, he was DJing middle school parties <laughs> while he was trying to make it. And he, now yeah. he's VP. Like, it's just such a really cool story. And he was so willing to learn. I love what he said. Um, I look to your right and look to your left mm-hmm. and see where, what you can learn from those people. Um, and so, yeah, I just really loved his story and how he got to where he was. Cause he wasn't whining about his situation. Right. He wasn't whining going, I don't want to be doing this. I would rather be the vice president of national geographic. Mm-hmm. He didn't even know where he wanted to be yet. All he knew is that he wanted to tell stories and that he was good at it. And so he just kept going out there. Like you said, he hustled, um, and it, it has paid off. It has given him a long, fruitful career. Um, and he ended up winning a win- winning an Emmy as a result of it. Um, so just a really great guy. Thank you, Matt, for taking the time to to be at Story 2016. Thanks for being a friend to Story and continue to, to keep your office door open for us. We appreciate the conversations we've had with you, um, especially this one. So thanks for taking the time. And for those of you who haven't taken a chance to uh, check out the miniseries Mars, you have to do that. It is absolutely incredible. Um, there's not very much television that's been made like this before. It is a miniseries with live action drama. So there's actually a narrative uh, story being told, and then it keeps flashing back to current day, um, and they're doing these different documentary portions. It's really unique. It's amazing. Yeah, it's fascinating. And the complexity of the way and format they're trying to tell the story um, is mind-blowing to me, and they're, they're pulling it off. So if you've missed that, check it out. Uh, they're halfway through uh, airing them live, but you can stream them, I think, on the website, on the Nat Geo website. Yes. Which is just... Uh, NationalGeographic.com. Yeah, so check out NationalGeographic.com. Check out the miniseries Mars. It's going to blow your mind. A lot to learn as a storyteller, especially. Amazing stuff. And hey, speaking of you guys for listening, we have an opportunity, if you have a story that you would like to be heard on this podcast. We're trying to work on a special Christmas episode. It's coming up in just a couple of weeks. I can't believe it's we're halfway through December already. This is crazy. Where did 2016 go? (laughs) I walked into the office this morning and Kellen had Christmas music blasting. (laughs) uh, And then when Josh came in to help us record here in the studio, I was like, hey, we got to turn that Christmas music off. And all of us kind of collectively were like, Oh man. Uh, so yeah, so we're all in the spirit. And so we would love to hear your Christmas story. If you have a family tradition or a special memory that happened around Christmas time, it could be funny. It could be heartfelt. It doesn't matter. We just want to hear your story and we want to share your story with all of our other listeners. So if you have a story that you would love to be heard, we need you to submit those to us. How can they do that? Kellen? They can email us at info at storygathering.com. Really easy. There you go. So just shoot us an email, info at storygathering.com. You don't actually have to take the time to write out the whole story right now. We would just love to hear from you. 
So just shoot us an email saying, hey, I've got a story. I would love to share it. And here's an idea of what it is. And then we can give you some instructions and kind of clue you in on what we're working on. We think that'll be a ton of fun. I think that's it for this week. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Uh, I know we ask you this from time to time, but it really does help a lot. If you haven't done so yet and you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate us and or review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app so that other people can experience these amazing stories and we can all be inspired to continue telling stories and doing the most creative work that we have ever done. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.